0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Sherry. In this week's podcast, we have a really, really interesting roundtable. My guests are Michael Mulvahill, the head of strategy and analytics and an executive vice president for Fox Sports, Flora Kelly, the senior director of strategic and brand insights at ESPN, and Austin Karp, the managing editor slash digital at Sports Business Journal and Sports Business Daily. They are three of the foremost sports viewership experts in the United States. And we have an hour-long discussion on the macro trends of sports viewership and where things are heading on linear television and on demand, why the numbers for so many signature properties from the Stanley Cup Finals to the Kentucky Derby to the NBA Finals are down this year, whether they believe that social justice messaging had any impact on viewership, why the NFL, generally speaking, has uh, kept afloat with the viewership during COVID down uh, 11% or so, which uh, should be considered a win. Uh, we discussed streaming and uh, what kind of factors, uh, what kind of factor that will be over the next couple of years. And uh, some other topics from sports gambling to where sports viewership trends may be over the next 12 to 36 months. So three really interesting and smart people, Mike Mulvihill, Flora Kelly, and Austin Carp, all coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right. As I said at the top, we have three guests um, who I consider experts when it comes to uh, sports media viewership and trends and just sort of giving us data behind uh, either conventional wisdom or, at least in this case lately, uh, sports viewership has become part of the culture war that exists in the United States. Let me give everybody's uh, background again. Mike Movahill is the head of strategy and analytics and an executive vice president for Fox Sports. Fox Sports, like ESPN, cannot have too many executive vice presidents as part of their teams. Flora Kelly is the senior director of strategic and brand insights at ESPN. Austin Karp, who's been on this podcast before, is a managing editor uh, slash digital at Sports Business Journal, Sports Business Daily. And as I've always told anybody who follows me on Twitter, uh, one of the most valuable people you can follow when it comes to sports viewership ratings, uh, along with Anthony Krupe and Sports Media Watch, et etc. Uh, Flora, Mike, and Austin, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast.
1: Hi, thanks for having us.
0: All right, uh, here's where I want to start with all you guys. And uh, Mike, I'll start with you, in fact. Um, we are taping this today on October 19th, Monday. Can you give me and go as long as you wish an overview of where you think sports viewership is right now in the United States, whether you want to take that in terms of where it's trending, where it might be trending, where it's been in the last couple of months over COVID? I'm looking just to start with a sort of a broad overview, kind of a writ large kind of look.
2: Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me on. It's great to be part of this conversation. I'll I'll start with a couple kind of broad thoughts, and I'll try not to drone on for too long, and then we can kind of take the conversation in any direction that the group wants to take it. I mean, I think a couple things are going on on a macro level. One is that we've seen for a couple years that our business is separating into what I think of as two distinct marketplaces. Um, There's a movement toward a live content marketplace, which primarily exists on traditional linear TV and is defined mostly by premium live sports and news content. And there's an on-demand marketplace um, that is increasingly being defined by streaming services like Netflix, Amazon, Hulu. And that's where more and more viewing of entertainment content is going. And that process has been in place for a number of years but I think the conditions of the pandemic have just accelerated it and so if we were on our way to uh, two very distinct and separate businesses a live video business and an on-demand video business that now has become um, only even more true and that trend has been amplified and you see it in any look at the most watched shows in a given week or the most watched shows since the pandemic I think that since the start of the NFL season, 18 of the 20 most watched shows were NFL games. The other two were presidential and vice presidential debates. If you look at the top 20 shows in most weeks, what you find is that they're all live sports and news. And so I think we're seeing an acceleration of that trend where live sports and news content is what the traditional TV business is all about. And the entertainment viewing is going, as I say, to those primarily subscription driven On demand platforms. I think within sports, you know, obviously we've been in an upside down environment for the last couple months. We've had a lot of um, jewel events that are typically part of the spring calendar postponed due to COVID and rescheduled for the fall. And what it's created is kind of an oversupply of premium live sports in the fall. And so what that produces is an environment where total viewing of sports is pretty steady. And it's actually, depending on how you uh, look at the data, it's actually been up a little bit, whether that's since the return of baseball or since the return of the NFL. So the total pool of sports viewership is really healthy and really stable, but because all you have all these out of season players in the fall marketplace, the NBA playoffs, Stanley cup, playoffs, golf's us open triple crown horse racing events, um, all these things that aren't typically there. They're in the fall taking a slice of that pie, and it leaves less time for viewership of the NFL and Major League Baseball and college football, the things that are typically part of the fall landscape. So the total sports viewership um, is basically steady, but you just have more players taking a piece of that pie. And as a result, the viewership for individual sports is mostly down. In the case of the NFL, it's down a little in the case of some other da- properties, it's down quite a bit. Um, but I think it's really just that there are only so many hours in the day. There's only so much time that the consumer has to devote to sports viewership. The time that the consumer has hasn't increased just because there are more events in the fall. And so their limited amount of time is being split among more events, and the result is some viewership drops.
0: Flora, uh, I pose the same question to you. What are what kind of things are you seeing writ large when it comes to viewership?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think Mike said it really well. I mean, what I would add is as you're trying to make sense of this environment, you almost have to bucket the sports that are out of season in sort of an entirely different category because just take a step back, ask yourself, why do we look at year over year trends? We look at them to provide context. There is no context to how an NBA final should be doing in the fall against a presidential election when their season stops right? And they had to restart in the summer when putt levels are down. Um, There is no context for the Stanley Cup. So what I would tell your listeners is, one, you have to break out all the sports that are out of season because there is no muscle memory. For everyone, um, we all have an internal sports calendar, right? Fall is for football, spring is for um, the Masters. So those sports, when you're looking at those year over year trends, I would almost say they're not really telling us a lot in terms of the health of those individual sports. And I'll add on to what Mike said. I mean, when you, for us, we've been super focused on that total consumption piece because we're interested in the health of sports. We're not making a lot out of the sort of out and season stuff, but in terms of the health of sports, we're looking at that total number on a weekly basis. And it's telling us that in this environment, right, we are in you know, an environment that none of us have faced before. Sports is incredibly resilient. So we're looking at that total consumption number and what it's telling us is we have increased the amount of time people are spending with sports. We've increased frequency. So the, the points that they're coming back to sports, we've lost some casuals, which is to be expected in this environment. Um, we don't just look at TV, we've also looked at digital. Just this past month, <clears throat> the sports category reached 205 million users. That's the highest it's reached since 2017. So sports as a category is incredibly healthy. Now we can talk sport by sport, but just the first thing I would tell your your listeners is bucket those out-of-season sports separately. And then to Mike's point, the sports that are in season like the NFL they're doing it's doing incredibly well um if you look at 2016 the NFL was down 11 percent you look at the NFL this season it's down 11 percent and it is also dealing with issues it's never faced before like the scheduling conflicts like no preseason. um so again net net we're feeling pretty good
0: Austin um same thing for you um, Mike and Flora has sort of given a pretty good overview, but from your perspective and, you know, these guys are in research, you're in sort of the reporting of oftentimes their research or other research. How do you view it?
3: No, I have to agree with both of them. Um, you know, normally on a given year, like I'm more concerned with the traditional measurement, like, you know, average viewership versus average viewership, trying to get that apples to apples comparison. And the total hasn't really been, you know the total consumption and total viewing hasn't really been my primary metric that I'm going to, but I have to agree with, with Mike and with Flora here that 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 is crucial here. That people are watching a lot of sports, and it's because there have some sports like MLB have created some innovative windows, like during the wild card round. Instead of just having two wild card games this year, you had you know multiple series going three games. So while the average viewership may have been down, you had these new windows. Some of them were in the afternoon and you weren't getting maybe the the, the tons of viewers there that you may have gotten. But it's exposing more people to the baseball playoffs. Um, NASCAR, you know, they never had these Wednesday night races when they came back and it was exposing people to primetime races in the middle of the week. That was something new that they were trying. So I I credit the leagues and networks for getting getting together and trying some of these new things to see what might work and being flexible enough to move a football game to a Tuesday night is Tuesday night football something in the future? I doubt it, but uh, you know, it's interesting to think about. uh, Yeah. I mean, and just, just, you know, something we didn't talk about is like, you know, people are kind of just very tired right now. Just there's a lot going on between politics, between having to go through COVID, not knowing where an end might be, what, like what is going on homeschooling, you know, people might not have the energy to sit down and watch a two hour game at night after they've been, you know, helping their kids with, with school during the day, or there are just things like that, that are not part of what has been normal life that are, that is kind of, you know, in, interfering with some of the sports viewing we have seen, but definitely on the tonnage, it's just a lot going on right now and has cut into that viewership. Flora.
1: Yeah. I just kind of want to add on to that point that Austin had made about a lot going on. I think, if you kind of take a step back and you look at um, sports consumption, I think you can almost look at it as sort of something larger than that. Like viewership tra- trends, I think a lot of times give us a mirror into the mood of the country. So if you look at the start of the pandemic, I think a lot of us thought this would only last a couple of weeks, maybe a month or two. So there was a lot of hope. So when we, we would ask fans like, okay, what about the start of the sports? Are you excited about it? They were all excited. They all, a lot a ton said they would watch more. I think because for them, it marked the return of normalcy, right? And we saw that in the initial ratings we would get. The NFL draft broke records. It wasn't a particularly intrigue-filled draft, but it marked that return of normalcy for people. We saw it with the last dance and the viewership numbers we got there. I think as time has gone on, people have come to realize that the pandemic isn't going to end anytime soon. We don't have a sense when it will end. And I think as a country, we are in the middle of this pandemic fatigue malaise. And I think sports right now isn't reflecting that return to normalcy that everyone has expected. I think against that backdrop, again, what I would say is sports ratings is incredibly resilient against this malaise we're in as a country. And I think also when life returns to normal sports will again, mark that inflection point. And I think people will come and celebrate. And I think at the end of this, you will see that reflected in sports viewership.
0: Mike, um, I want to ask you this question because I think that for the average fan out there, they um, they're not sure why this is, even though you guys just, I thought explained it really well, they'll see, uh, you know, the someone we all read, um, John Lewis, of sports media watch, has done a great job, really yeoman's work in tracking the major properties and what the percentage declines are from last year. So, for instance, like, if I'm just a casual sports fan and I happen to see, like, data that the Stanley Cup finals are down 61%, or the Kentucky Derby is down in the 50s, or an NBA finals with LeBron James is down in the 40s, or the Preakness, or so the Indy 500 is down, like, I, I, while I, and again, I'm sort of just... I'm, I'm removing myself from covering this stuff and just being an average fan. Like, while I can understand what you guys are sort of saying, like the calendar's moved and the rhythms of sports are off, it's probably hard for me to still contemplate, well, how on earth could these jewel properties be down that much? So what would be your response to them in terms of, if someone is really curious as to, okay, I can understand the NBA Finals being down 20%, but how on earth is it down 50%? Or I can understand the Kentucky Derby... Um, didn't draw nearly what it did last year, but how on earth could it have lost half the audience? It's something I watch every year. So what, what is your data or what does your research sort of show you when it comes to these traditional jewel events that are U S open golf that are way, way down?
2: Well, that's interesting. I mean, what you're describing is exactly the job that we're tasked with doing, you know, it's our job to put some of those numbers in a larger context to help people understand, um, why looking at the, the single year trend for a single property maybe isn't the most instructive way of looking at the data. Um, I think what we have to try to do is frame up that data in a broader context that hopefully is a little bit more instructive. Part of that is trying to get people to pay attention to the total pie of viewership rather than focusing on a particular sport because you're right. If you look at things like the Stanley Cup finals, I don't want to call out anybody else's properties, but there, there are certainly a, a number of examples out there where an average fan could see a story that says this event is down 50% and their response to that might be to think that we are a business in crisis. And I think that what we're trying to argue is that because total viewership of sports is steady and because the the factors that are affecting our business right now, I believe are temporary, um, it actually paints a picture of a more stable business and a business that I think is going to come out the other side of the pandemic and really Um, really good shape, Uh, you know, I I feel like there are three things and and they've sort of been brought up already in various contexts, but three things that are really driving the business right now. One is the nature of the calendar and that the traditional sports calendar has been so disrupted. One is what Austin talked about, that um, news viewership and the, the intensity of the news cycle right now is so great and it's driving news viewership up dramatically. And I think that has to have an impact on us. And a third, and I think this is partly what Flora was talking about just a moment ago, is the idea that sports is sports drives and is driven by social connection. Right, A lot of what drives this business is that sports provides an environment that brings people together at a time when I would argue we are more separated than ever. And that was true before the, the pandemic, and it's only become more true under the circumstances of the pandemic. So you've got this whole business that's driven by its ability to bring the fan closer to their family, closer to their friends, makes them feel more connected to their community. And right now, the whole concept of social connection has just been completely turned on its head. And I don't think we can overstate or ignore how important it is that We are living under such unusual circumstances. We're experiencing something that none of us have ever experienced before. And that has to permeate the way that we consume media. It it informs and influences the way that we live our lives in a kind of an infinite number of ways. And it's not reasonable or realistic to expect sports media to be exempted from that. Um, Our ability to bring people together is frankly a little bit undermined right now. Uh, and that is difficult. And it's something that as a as an industry, we just have to work through. But I think the reason for optimism is that as we come out the other side of the pandemic, however long that takes, you're going to see that capability of sports to act as a social unifier come back. And as people are able to come to the games again, as they're able to have that shared experience that I think is so important, you know, that shared experience, will, I think, drive renewed interest in sports, which will then be reflected in the viewership. So uh, maybe that's a longer answer than you really were looking for. But I do think there are there are three primary drivers in play. And I think we can see an end date to two of them. And we can't necessarily know what the end date is of the pandemic, but we know it's out there somewhere. And at some point, we are going to be, to be able to get back to a more normal business environment and just a more normal life environment.
0: Austin, um, I'll ask you this, and Mike and Flora, you're welcome to chime in on this, but, you know, you're guests on this podcast, you're not reporters, you don't have to go into this area because it could get you in a little bit of a, perhaps a trickier spot. Uh, Austin, one of the factors that we always see come up, particularly with um, the NBA lately, is that people ascribe viewership drops to um, the messaging on the court, whether it's Black Lives Matter, social justice stuff in the league, they're not the only league that's been um, uh, sort of tied to tied to a culture war that here is the reason why viewership has dropped. The NFL, we saw, got this a little bit. Once the NFL went up, yeah, once the NFL went up, we, we sort of heard that rumbling die down. Um, and so I've always said that, you know, and I try to sort of do it in a mocking way on Twitter. I'm sure some people think it's great and some people think I suck. That's fine. But the larger thing is it's always multiple factors. Like that's what sort of the message I think for anybody who covers this stuff or has written about it or is in research, it's, there is never a singular factor as to why one thing exists, but there certainly is a massive conversation out there. And we have seen it get to the U.S. Senator level where people are ascribing the viewership drop of the NBA Um, to these social justice messaging. As someone who's written about this longer than me, as someone who traffics in this every day, how do you approach that? How do you approach when you at least see in some circles the the real assertion that the reason for this specific league dropping is because of social justice messaging?
3: Well, the first thing I'll say is that it's way too early to make any sort of long-term call in the nba like we're, we're just not even close to being make, make that sort of call we have to get next season maybe in the season after that to see what is going to be happening with the nba in particular uh, i'm still bullish on the nba uh, as a property long term just giving its its young demographics but you know we had this sort of discussion four years ago when it's like how much how, why is the nfl down is it because of the kneeling how much did the kneeling contribute to that and I think it's exactly what you said. It's there. Of course, there are going to be some people, but I don't think it's a major contributing factor. I think some of the people that are either offended or using it as a political soundbite um, may not have been watching the NBA ever before, or weren't going to watch the NBA at any point, anyways. But uh, I, I think it's the over the overwhelming reason why they are down is because of the placement on the calendar, because of the COVID disruption, because of shifts in linear television versus streaming. I mean, streaming is up for sports. You know, this is causing a major inflection point with that, with, with more of a shift towards streaming. And, you know, there may have been some casual sports fans, though, that were like, I, I get like, there's just too much politics going on in general. And maybe I'll either not watch the NBA or go watch another sport or just not watch sports right now. I, it has to be just part of the equation, but I don't think it's anywhere
0: near the top. Do you, uh, floor, You and Mike want to weigh in on this at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we've looked at it internally, and we really aren't seeing any signs that that's something that's happening at scale. I mean, we have registration data. Nielsen fuses that with um, voter registration data, and what we've seen is like Republicans de- declined one percent. It wasn't, there wasn't anything there that showed us that this was outweighing um, or. or primary contributing factor to the ratings declines. I think also like the more obvious points are, and, and people don't want to talk about it is the season was disrupted. They restarted in the summer. The NBA restarted in the summer when hot levels are down 11%. A ton of their playoff games occurred in the afternoon window. If you look at those games, they rated 45% lower than the playoff than the average playoff. So that hurts your momentum. When we look at viewership, what we saw was there was a drop off in casual fans, but that's not going to that's not a great headline. You know, NBA finals are down because casual fans dropped off. Um, And I think I'm, I'm with Austin. I'm feeling really bullish about the NBA. I think prior to covid, you know, they were a league in a little bit of a transition. Right. They didn't have Golden State this year. They always rank as sort of these top, you know, top 10 team. Um, You had two of your top three players out. You had KD out. You had Steph Curry out. The Eastern Conference, when LeBron moved over, like, left the Cavaliers, it's been shaky since then. But now we're starting a new season, right? KD, Steph are going to be back. Golden State's going to be back. I think what the finals did is it reintroduced a lot of fans to Miami. Miami's a top-10 team, but they didn't have a lot of – they didn't play in a lot of national windows – and I think that exposure will sort of help them in the Eastern conference. We saw it with OKC in, in 2012. Um, and then, you know, I think we don't know what the Nets are going to do with Steve Nash and, and Kyrie and KD and also Zion. I, You know, when Zion was healthy and was playing in the regular season, those games on average rated 30 percent higher than other NBA games. And just Again, if you take a step back, I think you know what the NBA has shown throughout this entire time that nobody wants to talk about is, is just leadership. I mean, they were the first t- professional team to say, you know what, we're not doing this, this is a pandemic, this is serious. They were the, one of the first professional teams to come back. I mean, the monumental undertaking of the bubble, shout out to Roz Durant over at the Wide World of Sports, one of the best executives. What they had to do to get that underway was tremendous what they've done to sort of support their players i think is tremendous and i think that helps them in the long term as a brand
0: mike before i get to the nfl did you want to add anything uh on this or uh do you want me to you want me to head to the nfl which is one of your properties
2: Well, I was going to take it to the NFL anyway, because it's really not appropriate for me to to comment on, you know, an NBA trend. But I think what we're seeing in our own NFL numbers probably affirms um, what Flora and Austin have already covered. You know, we look at the composition of the NFL audience, what percentage is coming from large cities, small towns. We look at uh, the income levels of our viewers, age and gender, obviously political affiliation. And we're not really seeing any dramatic movement in the type of person that's watching the NFL, whether that's on Fox or across the entire league. And I think if there were a political backlash, you would expect to see that show up in a really sharp movement among some of those characteristics, whether it's reflected in party registration, which is really straightforward, or something maybe a little bit more roundabout, like income level education level what you do for a living do you live in a big city do you live in a small town none of those things are really moving um, the audience is obviously a little bit smaller this year but what we're what we're seeing is a movement among the most casual fans where they have dropped out a little bit and those casual fans are democrats they're republicans white collar blue collar big city small town they, they come from every walk of life and every part of the spectrum and so there's no one characteristic that you point to and say, oh, my gosh, these guys are down 10 percent and that must be tied to um, politics. It's really more of, a, of an across the board movement. So and I will add one more point, which is that, you know, all, our company, Flora's company, every big media company, we all do um, consumer research. That's apart from the Nielsen sample. We're, we're just going out and talking to fans on a one to one level. And when we talk to NFL fans, particularly in the franchise markets, which are obviously big cities, which tend to lean blue, um, we actually hear a lot of support for the broader social elements uh, in our coverage. I mean, virtually every NFL city that has a franchise, all the franchise markets, they're all likely to lean blue in the upcoming election. And they're probably not cities that are going to be hotbeds of political backlash, at least for the kind of messaging that you're seeing in sports right now. So not only do I not feel like there's a backlash, I feel like in the most important markets to our business, there's actually support um, for this kind of messaging. And in the same way that the people who don't like the political messaging probably aren't watching any less, I think we'd also have to acknowledge that the people who like the messaging aren't watching more football because they like what they see in the end line or on the back of a player's helmet it just sort of shows up as a non-factor in the, in the bigger picture
0: That's interesting i'm proud of you mike you live in southern california i always expect you to work for the united nations but you answered that question so well done on your diplomacy there okay picture this it's friday afternoon
2: when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: Flora, I want to ask you this, and Mike, you should weigh in too, because um, I give you a lot of credit when it comes to college football strategy at Fox. I think some of the decisions that have been guided uh, by your research, and obviously, you know then foister uh, then then produced by eric shanks and others your bosses um, have been really really smart so floor can you give listeners a sense of where you see the college football um trends and i'll eventually get to you austin after these two you can weigh in on that because i know you're a georgia tech guy um but i'm really interested like it's a um college football to me is a fascinating viewership like sort of examination because it's very much a regional game right but And I'm sure you and Mulvihill will agree with this. There are some schools that are national schools. Ohio State is a national brand. Alabama is a national brand. Notre Dame is a national brand. Michigan is a national brand. I might – maybe Clemson sometimes floats in there as a national brand if they're great or LSU. But generally, it's a regional sport that ultimately gets judged nationally when it comes to the playoffs, which your company owns. And now we're in COVID, and now one of the conferences hasn't major conferences hasn't started yet in the Big Ten. One of the major conferences is playing in the SEC, and the early games. And I know you two guys always talk about momentum, zero momentum. I mean, you had just these lower level conferences playing, so it's not like the public was like psyched to watch college football until the big teams played. So that that's I'm filibustering here, but it's my sort of long way of asking you, like, how, if I'm interested in sports viewership of college football, like, w- what should I be looking at this year, and how can I judge it?
1: Yeah. So again, we're not looking at year over year trends for college football. And obviously it started slow. There was no Labor Day weekend. That's usually drives, uh, you know, one of the biggest weekends in terms of college football viewership. The, the conferences are starting at different times. Now, with that said, it started slow, but we feel like we're seven and 10, seven, seven out of 10 in terms of coming back. Um, there's some markers in the data that are showing some positive momentum. So like, if you look at week six, it featured the top three games of the season, um, which was nice. Uh, for two straight weeks, nearly all the major networks have been up week over week. Um, and, and that's good a good sign. When we look at all college football games, again, we're trying to look at it in the net net. Um, we reached, or college football reached 59 million viewers in week six. That was up. Um, from 49 million viewers two weeks prior. So again, you're looking at that overall momentum and that's prior to sort of the Big Ten being back. Consistently what we see, it hits about 72 million during a regular season, but those markers are telling me that it's headed in a good direction going into the Big Ten opening up. Um, And again, college football faced significant cable news headwinds. I, I, you know, the the Saturday, two Saturdays ago, it feels like a year ago at this time when, when the president had COVID, it was a huge sort of cable news. It was double the rate of what we typically see. And we still saw um, some positive college football ratings. Now, this weekend, there were some scheduling disruptions with LSU. It'll be interesting to see how that CBS game did. Um, I think that'll be a nice bellwether. But I think internally, we're really happy with the progress... And for the SEC network, I mean, we've got some initial numbers there from ComScore. They're not Nielsen rated, and that SEC kickoff Saturday was SEC Network's most viewed day ever.
0: Um, so, before I get to you, Austin, Mike, I, I want to ask you because you, you, um, your network made a very strategic and smart shift, I thought, to move the best Big Ten game up into that early window to try to, um, to try to almost get your own, in a sense, exclusivity for the maybe the best Big Ten game of the week that 12 o'clock game which I think ratings wise um uh, worked out for you well you obviously don't have the data yet on that property because the Big Ten hasn't started but from what Flora said and your department obviously at Fox sees all these numbers as well um do you have a sense as to what college football is this year in particularly in relation to some of these other sports that we've we've discussed
2: Yeah, first of all, thanks for saying that about our our movement toward focusing on noon Eastern in the early part of the day. I mean, uh, I I do believe that that's worked. I think we've seen some rating success there. Uh, And a lot of the reason that we undertook it was because we felt it was an acknowledgement of how strong ESPN and ABC are and CBS uh, in college football. You know, we really felt like we were having a hard time establishing an identity in college football because they have so much strength at 330 and in primetime. And that we had to start thinking of ourselves a little bit more as counterpunchers, uh, and the way to do that was to take over the early part of the day and try to make that our identity. And I think it it has worked. We we finally do sort of have an identity in college football. And I think if we're being honest, we didn't have one for the you know five years prior to that when we were um, trying to program the later part of the day and and just not having the success that we wanted. You know, the way that we're looking at college football numbers this year. Um, is rooted in that regionality that you talked about. You know, we can look at the Nielsen ratings region by region. And even though two of our three conferences haven't begun play yet, two of our three Power Five conferences haven't begun play yet, um, we are looking pretty closely at what's happening on the other networks. And I think what we're seeing is that the numbers in the Southeast are just fine the numbers in the Southwest, as Nielsen defines the Southwest, which is largely the state of Texas plus Oklahoma, they're pretty good too. You know That reflects the Big 12 being back. Um, But when you look at the Big 10 footprint, which Nielsen defines as East Central and West Central, where you look at the West Coast, you look at the regions of the country that are most affected by the Big 10 and the Pac-12 not being back, they're really weak. And that's not surprising at all. And I think you're correct that a college football fan wants to see their favorite team's game, and then they want to see the biggest game of the day. Well, if your favorite team isn't playing, your interest in the biggest game of the day is really undermined. And I think in markets like Detroit, Milwaukee, Columbus, when, when the Big Ten comes back and a college football fan in Milwaukee can watch the Badgers at noon, They're also going to have a greater interest in watching Alabama at 3.30 and a greater interest in watching Clemson in primetime. So we really need to just get the whole country back. And I think what we're going to find is that those markets that are missing the Big Ten and missing the Pac-12, their interest in the SEC, Big 12 and ACC is going to rise a little bit once they have an opportunity to watch their own uh, local team.
0: Uh, Austin, I'll go to you. I I, I I happen to agree with Mike there very much. I, I've always believed that uh, college football on Saturday is very much a momentum play and that the early window leads into the middle window leads into the late window. Uh, maybe you could say the NFL is, but I, I might even argue that college football even feels like it's more of a momentum play because it does. Once your game is over, I do think it whets the appetite to then see whatever the the best game of the day is after yours so from sports business daily's perspective like what have you seen so far when it comes to ratings viewership trends in college football
3: if you look if you want to look at it year over year just given you know with the caveat that it's the topsy-turvy covid football world is down in in the 30 percent range um but it's like mike said there's some of the biggest teams in the country some of the most popular teams in the country and some of the most rabid markets across the countries particularly for college football which are you know can be smaller markets like your Birmingham's. Um, While the South is up, those are all over the country. It's down, but um, you know, I had this image, I've had this image in my head from early parts of the season of Mike and the rest of Fox, like sitting there with these big 12 games at 12 o'clock with a a carton of Tums, just given how uh, unstable the big 12 can be and like hoping that somebody emerges. But no, now they're, they're getting into a part of the season where they, they're going to have the Big Ten. They're going to have some of these more popular teams to help, you know, really drive some of their numbers. Um, and I, I agree with Mike that like having that is a rising tide for all boats in the college football world. Because you'll have some really highly ranked teams, maybe at Ohio State a few times in that 12 o'clock. Then it's like, oh, you know, if they win or lose, that affects who you're watching, maybe it's CBS and 330 or ABC at 330. And then ESPN or ABC or or if CBS has a primetime game or Fox has a primetime game. It it, it does flow throughout the day, like you were talking about, Richard.
2: Before history is written,
1: it's played.
0: Also, I'm going to stick with you, uh, and then I'll get Flora and Mike as well. Um, Mike emailed me something that I thought was really interesting and I know he wanted to talk about, and that is the notion that um, social media, and particularly Twitter, which we're all on and and, and most of the uh, sports media is on, um, has changed the perception of um, about success or failure when it comes to a league or a network regarding uh, a specific game Based on viewership, and what I mean is that um, Twitter, I think, has a real impact and on the discussion as to um, what was a success or what was not a success in the moment. You know, it, based on the singular game viewership, and then people making a decision as to what to compare that to. You, you, everybody on this uh, call has mentioned that year over year, this year is not really a great viewership. That said, a lot of people will cherry pick a number. I'm sure I've done it myself to sort of make the case that, hey, this was a well-watched game or a very successful game. How have you found, Austin, just in your years of covering this, what is the impact of social media on the sort of sports viewership world? Because to me, it's massive. I mean, again, to go back to the example, did you ever think you'd live in a time when uh, two U.S. senators are kicking around uh, sports viewership ratings? But, But that's where we are in 2020. So there you go.
3: I mean, I'm just going to speak specifically to Twitter because I think that's the platform of choice we're all really referring to here and driving that. And it's, yeah, as Twitter has gotten more adoption, particularly on the business side with networks, you know, letting people know about, hey, this is the hot game. Like it was always hard. You didn't know maybe which games were close unless you were watching the bottom line on a network. But now you, like you said, you have people discussing like, oh, close game, like, you know flip to this channel to watch this particular game it's a close ohio state michigan game or something like that i think that over the years has become more of a factor you have celebrities talking about oh this game is fantastic and that's millions of people and it just takes you know not everyone's going to tune in but you might get some more fans you might get some more casual fans who are just flipping through the channels or looking for something to watch and it does help. It has helped.
0: Flora, what about you? How do you see the relationship between social media and and any kind of uh, viewership, plus or minus?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, and I'm newer to this game than you guys are, but I think um, what's interesting to me is that, again, I think people are really interested in sports viewership because it is a marker of where our culture is today. I think when there's a big game or event, you feel like I think that was a moment, right? And the the rating tells you if it was a moment. So one, I think there's just general interest about ratings. Um, You know, in terms of what the storyline is, yeah, I get it. People are using data to try to like get a fast headline. I think that's our job to provide that context and to make sure people like understand the nuance of it. But again, more than anything, it's less about the business to business. I'm just fascinated on how like the general public is interested in, in sports ratings. And again, I think it's because they're seeing that as like an arbiter of what's going on overall. Um, so that's what I have to say.
0: Mike, uh, both of us, uh, you know, we'd be classified as being online uh, because, you know, we are very active on Twitter, at least monitoring it. And this was your thought uh, that you had forwarded to me. So, do you like, you know, so, so much of social media, in all honesty, it, it, it's so fleeting in terms of the discussion point will happen and then literally there's a new news cycle an hour later. But you know, you could argue that the um, – how do I sort of say this? Like at least in my years of writing about this stuff, I have never seen more sports viewership discussion in 2020 just as a, as a, discuss, as a discussion point culturally. And you would think just based on that alone, social media has to – if if at the base level, it has to at least impact executives who read things and perhaps might be impacted by – what they read. So how do you know, there's a lot of ways to go on this, but how do you see it in terms of just, I'll leave it as sort of general impact here?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's a really fascinating topic. And I recognize that it's a little bit inside baseball, but I, I, I am definitely interested in how social media has changed the way that our companies and the leagues that we do business with are perceived. And, you know, I've been in this business long enough that I can remember that the way that perception was formed around a league or around a network was that you put your commissioner or you put your chief executive on the phone with Rudy, Rudy Marsky, and you armed him with a list of talking points and they would get on the phone for a half hour and then Rudy would write a story and that would basically form perception of the NBA or the NFL or Fox Sports. You know, people like Dick Ebersault and David Stern, like they were brilliant at that and they were able to shape perception of their business that way and it just feels like that has gone completely out the window that that model has just become way too slow and what what we experience now is there's this never-ending dialogue about our businesses and it's largely a conversation about ratings and it's happening on social media and Austin you're right that's primarily we're talking about Twitter it's happening 24 hours a day every day Uh, And it's challenging, frankly, to keep up with the pace of that conversation. You know, When we premiere something like WWE SmackDown, I know that SmackDown fans are going to be online dissecting our ratings before we even really have a chance to process them and come up with a narrative of our own. And so that conversation has become so fast and so powerful. And I, I think you are seeing that there are organizations in sports, whether they're conferences, leagues, networks, whatever um, that have embraced that dialogue. Hopefully we're one of them. And and I think that's been beneficial to us, but I think you've got companies that are embracing that social media conversation and they're able to use it to, um, enhance the perception of their success. And I think you've frankly got other organizations that have been slower to get involved and they're being caught a little flat footed. I mean, I think there have been, um, leagues, teams, athletes, not athletes so much, but leagues and teams um, that have faced a lot of criticism about the strength of their business uh, on social media, and they've been slow to respond. And I think it becomes very difficult to turn those perceptions around. So I think the way that we talk about success and failure in sports and sports media has really, really changed. And it is very much a Twitter-driven conversation now and I think that if you're not engaging in that conversation literally every day, um, you're really at risk of allowing for a negative perception of your, your league or your business. And that's a, that's a fairly recent development. You know, as far as general public interest in ratings, I, I guess it, it has a little bit to do with the fact that social media obviously has an infinite capacity for content, right? Like if you're interested in sports media or you're covering sports media, There are only a half a dozen big rights deals that happen in a given year. There are only a half a dozen talent moves that really, really matter and might ultimately affect viewership. But the ratings come out every day. Um, And the ratings are coming out sometimes multiple times a day, depending on different data streams and major markets versus nationals. So there's always something to talk about. So if you're looking for content, which in the social media environment, everybody is all the time. The ratings provide a lot of content. It's something that we can talk about every day, and we do talk about every day. And when you look at people who are content factories, like Clay Travis and Colin Coward at our company, people that are just always looking for the next thing to put out on social media, the ratings are kind of a never-ending supply of something to talk about. And we, meaning me, Flora, people who have jobs like ours, we kind of have to be reactive to that. Um, So that's a really new dynamic, and I, I do think it's a really interesting thing to think about in terms of how it informs perceptions of our business.
1: I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast.
0: All right, let's finish up with uh, two things here. And I'll start with you, Flora. One of the questions I get all the time on uh, on social media or uh, whether it's like a mailbag at The Athletic or previously at Sports Illustrated is about streaming and how streaming is counted in the landscape. And th- there's always a, a perception, it's not an incorrect perception, that the real viewership numbers are never accurate because we're not counting people who are watching Uh, online 100% accurately whether they're stealing their parents password and watching game whether they're swiping links on Reddit and so um, how do you approach how do you approach sort of uh, counting or marking streaming numbers um, and and where do you see that's importance as it heads forward at the moment. Like if you look at all these numbers still, I think people would be stunned. Like linear television still is massive in terms of the majority of how people watch. But, you know, I think everybody thinks at a certain point, whether it's 5, 10, 20 years from now, um, I'm not saying it's going to flip, but streaming numbers are going to be higher. So where do you – it's, again, sort of an overall question as to how do you measure it, what do you think about it, and what should people know about it?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, for us, it is part of our currency. So it is measured. Streaming's is measured um, in Nielsen for us. So um, it's still not the vast majority of the audience. The vast majority of the audience is still coming from that set-top box. So the numbers you guys get include streaming over-the-top television streaming. It doesn't include digital and mobile. That comes a few days later. Um, It is incredibly important, though. It's 16% of ESPN's audience. That gets bigger when you look at um, younger demographics. So it rises to one in four among 18 to 49-year-olds, one in three among 18 to 34-year-olds. Monday Night Football, what we're seeing is the streaming audience has grown 38%. So Again, from an ESPN perspective, streaming's always been important. We've always made worked with Nielsen to make sure that's captured in our measurement. Um, I will say like as the world changes, we are direct to consumer and that's incredibly important for us. We have 8.5 million subs for ESPN Plus as of July and that's growing. Um, as you think about the newer players, right? I think a lot of people think about it in, in, in really clinical terms like well, Amazon Prime doesn't have the scale. These other streaming services don't have the scale. I think one of their biggest disadvantages is, and one that is not going to be a hurdle that they can easily pass, is they don't have the, right, the brand in the space. So what I mean by that is they are not established sports brands. So I think there's a little bit of a cognitive dissonance when you think you can just buy a set of sports rights and plump it on your service and think the consumer... Will follow you. It doesn't, it almost doesn't make sense, right? Um, For us, we've spent 41 years building and protecting our brand, countless sports centers, 30 for 30s, countless game days, cutting edge technology in our broadcast, high quality production, tinkering with the booth. That creates um, a relationship with the consumer. They trust us. Um, You look at any brand metric, awareness, brand love, leadership, trusted, you know, we've established that with the consumer. And I think because of that, we feel really confident that wherever the consumer wants to go, we can follow them. What we've seen so far with ESPN Plus is that is a younger, more diverse audience. So, you know, we'll be there wherever they show up. And I think, again, as you think about these newer, not newer, but these technology players, I think their biggest hurdles. They have not yet established themselves as a brand and that takes time and that takes a lot of money. So
0: Austin, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to go around the horn with some different quick things here. What kind of factor do you think in the next five to 10 years, sports gambling will be in terms of bringing new viewers in or simply, um, simply are those viewers already baked in? Are those gamblers already baked into the the viewership of sports?
3: I think some of it is baked in a little bit, but I think there is growth potential there. Um, just like we talked about with, there is, it's a factor that can help. And I think one of the biggest things that will help is the growth of you know mo- mobile phone adoption in a state. Just having your brick and mortar facility in a state does not, I don't know that that's necessarily going to be the inflection point that really increases it. I think as you see more states get to the adoption of mobile sports betting, where people can do it from their couch. And, you know I, I, you know, I was talking to a buddy this weekend who was talking about, you know, in a state that has mobile betting, he's like, oh, you know, when Clemson started really beating up on my yellow jackets, you know, <laughs> you know, placed an in-game bet, you know, on a you know, a moving spread. And I think that if you can do that from your couch, if you can do that from, if you're out at a park somewhere, like you're not tied to being in a specific location, I, I think it can help sports viewership in, in the long term.
0: Mike, do you see anything, anything in the near term or even the, the the medium near term? So we'll call that like five to 10 years. Any property that can cut into the NFL's viewership dominance in North America?
2: No, <laughs> that's, that's probably like a, not the most interesting answer. But I think in that window, um, a window that might cover the term of the next round of NFL rights deals. Uh, no, I don't think there's anything that's going to make significant headway and, and challenge the NFL for leadership in American sports.
0: All right, let's end with this and we'll go Flora, then Austin, and then, uh, and then Mike, um, can you, Flora, I'll start with you. Can, can you leave the audience with, um, people who are interested in sports viewership, some, um, some trends that they should pay attention to, like over the next, you know, can't even speak in five years, let's sort of just say between the next 12 to 36 months, um, you know, and I realize so many variables exist because of COVID, but what are some of the things that you're going to be sort of looking towards in terms of sports viewership trends, either up, down, uh, or neutral?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to we're going to keep looking at total sports consumption because right now that's our most level sort of metric we can monitor. I think um, for the NBA, they may be they're going to be the only sport that is starting not on a regular schedule in the upcoming season. So I think you have to be a little careful when you look at those numbers at the start of the season, you know. Short term, you know, even outside of COVID, we are going to look at gambling and the impact of gambling. We're going to try to isolate sort of markets. I'm in New Jersey. We're going to try to isolate if we're starting to see any impact in those markets. Um, you know, we're constantly looking at digital and streaming um, because we are seeing growth, right? Monday Night Football growth is happening on streaming. Um, it may not offset what we're seeing on linear, but I think ultimately you have to, as much as possible, look at the entire pie. And right now, there is no holy grail of cross platform measurement that gives you like this one number that gets you everything. So you're just going to have to look at all those parts and, and try to come to some conclusion.
0: Austin?
3: It, it's two things I'm looking for, and Flora just alluded to it. One is getting a more ac- as accurate as possible, as accurate as possible, a measurement of how strong sports really is. And that, you know, has started with the inclusion, you know, quicker inclusion of -of out-of-home viewing, bars, restaurants, you know, airports. And while those aren't packed right now, when sports does come back, you're going to see a major uptick in how valuable sports is for brands who want to get their messages out to consumers. It is more important than ever sports, you know, as a vehicle for that. And the other thing I'm watching is how cable news viewership in particular goes post November 3rd. And it may not be November 4th where you start seeing a decline. It may not be until after Inauguration Day where you start seeing some sort of decline there from especially those three major networks, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. And if those start to come down, where are those viewers going? Is it going to entertainment programming or does it shift maybe to more sports viewing where you see that as a rising tide for sports?
2: And you, Mike? Well, I'm really glad I got to go last on this question because that is a really, really difficult question. And I get to spin off of what Flora and Austin have already said. Um, I think a good thing to look at will be trends outside of sports themselves. What else is happening in television that either impacts sports or affects the value of sports? Austin talked about news viewership. I think that's a really good place to start. Are we going to see some kind of return to normalcy after November 3rd or on whatever day we have a conclusive result to the election. I think that's probably pretty likely. I think we're going to see continued erosion of primetime entertainment ratings, which will tighten the marketplace of rating points that are available to advertisers and will make the relative stature of sports uh, even stronger. And That's been an ongoing trend, but I think that's likely to accelerate over the next couple of years. And then thinking in the really long term and going a little bit beyond that 36 month window that you laid out, um, I am really bullish on the future of sports gambling uh, and how it's going to affect our business. Uh, I feel like there's been some discussion that maybe the impact hasn't been as great as people expected, which to me feels a little bit like saying in 1978 that cable TV didn't work. I mean, we've barely even begun the process of building that business, and I think a significant milestone that will come up pretty soon is that we need to get to a point where there are enough legal wagering states that we can take national advertising from wagering companies. And once that happens, I think it's really going to elevate that activity in public consciousness and change the the future direction of that business. And I would finish that by saying that you know companies like Fox, Disney, Comcast, everybody that's engaged in sports, we fundamentally make money in two ways: we sell advertising. And we collect affiliate fees from pay TV distributors. I really think that in my working career, we'll get to a point where this will go from being a two revenue stream business to a three revenue stream business. And we'll all be making money from advertising and from affiliate fees and from wagering revenue. That's really like the long-term end game for the impact of wagering on the media business.
0: Mike Movihill is the head of strategy and analytics and an executive vice president for Fox sports. Flora Kelly is the senior director of strategic and brand insights for ESPN. And Austin Carp is a managing editor slash digital at sports business journal and sports business daily. Um, over the last uh, 55 minutes or so, you've heard um, three of the foremost sports viewership ex- experts in the United States of America um, off of their insights on what I think is a really fascinating topic. Flora, Mike and Austin, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for working so cheap. And um, I wish you guys nothing uh, but the best of success. I'm sure I will see you all online. You can follow all of these uh, people, Mike Mulvahill, Floor Kelly, and Austin Carp on Twitter. I highly recommend all of them because generally speaking, um, if you are interested in sports uh, viewership stuff, they're almost on a daily basis putting out something that's interesting and doesn't exist elsewhere, so I highly recommend all three of them on Twitter. Austin, uh, Flora, and Mike, thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media
1: Podcast. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Richard. Thanks, you guys.
0: Thanks for having us. Alright, back in the studio, my thanks to uh, Mike Mulvihill, Flora Kelly, and Austin Carp for their time and for a really interesting conversation. Um, you may not know their names uh, compared to some of the other people who've been on this podcast, but, um, but I think you if you're, if you're at this point point, you've stayed with me, uh, I think you found their, um, their analysis and their information really interesting. I know I did. If you like these kind of conversations, head to the uh, archives in the Sports Media with Richard Dutch podcast, and, um, and you'll see other similar sports media conversations. Prior to uh, this episode, we had John O'Rand of the Sports Business Daily talking about NFL viewership and uh, Turner Sports NBA analyst Stan Van Gundy on uh, covering games in the bubble and some other topics prior to that show ESPN's Malika Andrews on reporting four months inside the NBA bubble prior to that had uh, Jeff Perlman talking about his new Lakers book um and then just go down the list of the archives Jim Trotter and Steve Weish of NFL media Kavitha Davidson and Jessica Luther have a new book out Renee Paquette formerly Renee Young of the WWE we had her on for uh, a long conversation about uh, leaving the WWE and um and uh, and all that uh, that came with that. Prior to that, best-selling author James Andrew Miller, who's on this podcast uh, a lot, talking about a number of issues. And then just uh, head down the list, and I think um, you will find um, some interesting uh, conversations. Uh, a lot of these still hold up if you're in the sports media. Again, i want to thank everybody at Cadence Thirteen, particularly the producers of this podcast, Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. Thanks to the leadership group of Cadence Thirteen: Chris Corkran, Spencer Brown, John McDermott. This is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.